0: Hello, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, Money in Macro Talks. Uh, I'm Juris
1: Gasford, an economist, and today I'm talking to an investor. I am an uh, investment professional, practicing investment professional. I, I work as a registered, fully registered portfolio manager in Canada. And I also run a YouTube channel called The Plain Bagel, uh, which focuses a lot on basic investor topics and in education. I talk a bit more recently about headlines and things like that uh, news items if you will Uh, but kind of the core content at least that started the channel was just really basic information what is a stock what is a bond and focusing on on kind of the boring long-term approach to investing as opposed to chasing you know speculation and and high-risk plays and that kind of stuff so kind of a uh I don't want to say counter movement because mm-hmm. there are other content creators who put a great mm-hmm. content focus on that as well. Yeah, but trying to to you know talk against some of the more sensationalist stuff out there, I guess.
0: Excellent. So a boring investment channel, but actually just like, I yeah, know it's like the name. <laughs> I know that uh, you put out quite entertaining content, uh, reviewing. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Reviewing uh, films like The Wolf of Wall Street, for example, putting
1: yourself uh, in the thumbnail in uh, in, a, in a really funny way. Yeah, I was proud of that. I, I not, I'm not the. I don't have the best Photoshop skills, but I was, I was pretty proud of how that turned out. Do you still do that yourself? Completely, pretty much. Yeah, I, I do a lot of the channel work myself. I've leaned on others in the past, and I do have, fortunately, some kind of contacts to even help with editing. Mm-hmm. But the majority of videos, it's a one man show: scripting, recording, editing, and and even thumbnails, which admittedly I kind of throw around put together very last minute, it's usually the the very last thing at times, even minutes before the video goes live. Mm-hmm. it's actually, it, that's probably a part I'll be outsourcing at some point because it's, I'm sure like we've, yeah. we've actually talked about this, like it's unnecessarily stressful <laughs> when you can't, when you feel like you can't get it right. Like, and it's such an important aspect that there's someone else who could probably do a better job than me. But the thing is, I enjoy every part of it. You know, at work, I do very, you know, number focused and, and things like that. A lot of the stuff with the channel, even though it's it's the same subject, the editing and stuff—it's a creative side to the topic. So it, I enjoy doing it. It's kind of a nice balance between what I do for my day job.
0: Yeah, because you actually do a, a day job on the side as well. Is that like a full-time thing? Because
1: yeah, full-time mm, job. Yeah, that's, that's I, uh, impressive. Am, <laughs> thank you. I'm working after this actually. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I work for a money manager. So I, I, the nice thing is it bleeds nicely into what I do for my channel because. For my job, I'm actually managing client money. So I started it off as an investment analyst, then kind of helped make more client-focused decisions behind the scenes, and I'm now kind of more front-facing, but the majority of my work is still the research side. So Mm -hmm. uh, doing investment analysis for the other portfolio managers to help kind of support the operations. Uh, But it's nice because, you know, for YouTube, you have to research, or, well, you should research (laughs) the topics anyway. A lot of the time what I do my work, because I actually help with communication pieces for my company as well, Mm -hmm. a lot of the time that lends itself to a topic I can then cover in a video. And usually, you know, the stuff that clients are thinking about at my work are what viewers might be interested in seeing a video on it, on the plain bagel. So, yeah, so far it's, it's worked. It's, it is a lot of effort to, to hold up both, but I, I like doing both.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't realize that. I think. Yeah. I mean, that that makes total sense. And so, okay. So you're an analyst for your firm, and others basically make then investment decisions based on your research, uh, which is great since we all love the the plain
1: bagel, of course. <coughs> <laughs> yeah. I the the funny thing is one of the I, I don't want to say one of the only because there are plenty of people who do this, but while a lot of other big finance channels talk a lot about specific companies, I actually avoid that, even mm-hmm. though. That's what my day job is. <laughs> um, I I don't talk about stock picks or anything like that. And I that's really just because there's a lot, well, there's a number of reasons. One is compliance. It's very hard to have a full-time job as an analyst yeah, and to basically do that online as well uh, because there's a lot of liability and stuff when you're fully registered as, as a portfolio manager. Mm-hmm. Basically, you can't give broad recommendations out. You kind of are held to a higher standard. Yeah. Uh, but on top of that, you know, I don't, it's kind of like the teach a man to fish, ask, you know, Kind of lesson, you know. I, I could just throw out picks, and people could just take them at face value. But I don't think there's a whole lot of, of value in that. You know, I think a lot of people are better suited to, you know, learn the basics themselves. And if they want to research stocks, great. Then do that research. If you don't want to research stocks, great. You know, there's passive investing options out there. Me giving you positions isn't going to make you a better investor, I guess. So mm. uh, funny enough, I'm one of the few that completely avoids that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I see. Yeah. Your your channel is mostly educational, and now that that makes sense uh, as to why you do that. Uh, but I do hope that I can ask you a couple of uh, questions then today yeah. uh, about and what you usually don't talk about.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to to chat about it. And and I've said before, like I don't, I won't be giving recommendations, but I'm I'm happy to talk about the approach and all that. And you know, I'll always just be upfront if there's something, yeah, legally I I can't talk about. But other than that, like yeah, it's. I don't talk a lot about my process, so I'm I'm happy to to chat about it.
0: Awesome. What a scoop. And (laughs) you, you don't have to worry too much because I'm an economist, right? So what I care about is currencies, countries central banks, right? I don't yeah. really care too much about individual companies.
1: You're not going for the stock picks? You're not going for the hot takes? I am
0: not. No, 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 that's, I'm not. Okay, well,
1: that's
0: good. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah, I did invest because people, like I mentioned in the beginning, like people conflate too often, right? Oh, you're you're mm-hmm. an economist, you must be an investor as well. Or even even some people say like, oh, you can only be a good economist if you are an investor. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I did invest a little bit on my own behalf and actually got burned uh, once or twice because I applied uh, economic theory incorrectly, which I'm sure we'll get to. Mm -hmm. But before we do, I just wanted to talk to you about something, which is a shared battle of ours, Uh, I think. I think we are both at the moment somewhat involved in a battle to fight sensationalism or in other words, to fight the thumbnails with the the big red arrows down and everything (laughs) is collapsing whats What's your take on this? Because I know you have talked about this on Twitter and on other platforms before. yeah what have we seen? Um,
1: so uh, it's kind of the the tricky part of, of YouTube, right? Um, the reason why people put that stuff in their thumbnails is because it it does well. you know the algorithm rewards that kind of sensationalist stuff because it's the same thing with you know click everyone knows about Clickbait in general when it comes to articles. Uh, an article with a very captivating or a title that elicits some sort of strong emotion is more likely to lead to a clicker or, or, you know, someone to read it than something that gives a very plain and, and leveled analysis of that thing. And unfortunately, you know, with the past few years, you know, with GameStop and, and the pandemic, which kind of made a lot of people focus more on investing than they might have before, which mm-hmm. there are great aspects to that, but also drew a lot of attention to those types of, you know, headlines. That maybe in the past, people wouldn't necessarily be as interested about a story about, uh, you know, why the stock market's going to crash in two months or whatever the title might be. My own view is is I understand why it happens because of what I said. You know, if you're a YouTuber,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I I get that you're going to try and, you know, do well for your channel and do the tricks that it takes to get there, whether that be clickbaity titles or clickbaity thumbnails. What sits wrong with me is because, you know, I'm investment focused. I know that when it comes to investing, you know, emotional responses is kind of your your core enemy. It's it's actually one of the main detriments that people face when investing is their shortcomings from an emotional standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's so much academic literature that shows just how terrible we are at investing and how a lot of that, not all of it, some of it is more cognitive, but a lot of that is tied to emotional responses. So it's funny because those that same approach to marketing videos is sort of the you know, the core evil, I guess, of, of people's personal investing and why they don't necessarily do well. So to me, you know, I personally wouldn't want to push titles about how the market's going to collapse because I know that might be, make people make poor investment mm, decisions. Yeah. So, uh, so that's kind of my view from it. Yeah, you know, sell or, or yeah, sell at the bottom, right? That's kind of the the what it mm-hmm. could elicit, if you will.
0: But so that's kind of my main thing. You are a YouTuber. You're a successful YouTuber. Do you do a little bit of uh, clickbait from time to time?
1: Uh you know what i tr- I genuinely try to avoid it. It depends how you define clickbait. I guess I've done more like you know I do focus on marketing. you know there are times where I think you know there's probably an arrow in a couple of my thumbnails. Usually, what I try to do though is i is I base that on what I'm actually discussing. so if I'm talking about gamestop for example, mm-hmm. I'll show the the price chart for gamestop or or the or the g d p chart for a country that's seen a decline as opposed to just you know I I avoid flames. (laughs) That's my big one. So, you know, and that's the thing is I try not to be too, you know, you don't want to get on your high horse and talk about how everyone is is doing this evil thing or whatever, calling it evil. You know, there are ways to make an attractive thumbnail and, and an interesting thumbnail. You just don't want to misrepresent the situation and especially go to that extreme where you're sensationalizing something as being the end of the market or, you know, the demise of something that could elicit that knee-jerk reaction of of selling everything or whatever have you. Yeah,
0: but I think maybe I actually do a little bit more of it than, than you do. So for example, in uh, the last video that I posted, which was rather successful, I, I, I did use Flames, but in an ironical, uh, ironic uh, way. But, uh, but, and- but still, I also said like, no, China's economy is not going to collapse. Which is, I think if I remember sort of my days as an academic, the, the paper title would have been different. It would have been, I think it's, it's rather unlikely this scenario that's being sketched by these YouTubers that says China will totally collapse, right? If you, if you mm-hmm. catch my drift. Um,
1: yeah, but, I, I think what matters is qualifying your message, right? It depends on what your assertion is and whether, like, the term clickbait usually means that you're misleading someone. So, uh, you know, if you were to post a thumbnail that said, I can't believe so-and-so died, and then your video is about how that person isn't actually dead. that's kind of clickbait because yeah. you know you, you're misled viewers if your belief is what you're saying in the thumbnail or, or the title of the video, I don't think that's clickbait you know you can make that interesting and captivating it to me the line is when you start misrepresenting stuff and especially when you even if you believe what you're saying you know when you start to get into more sensationalist stuff like this will surely be the end of this thing. One thing I've always tried to do is qualify statements as to what's a, what's an opinion and what's a fact. You know, you can say you have an opinion about whether it be China's economy. Uh, you could say, you know, it's my opinion. They're in a really tough situation. Mm-hmm. I think if you do that, though, you have to recognize your own, and this is important, like your own qualifications for making that claim, right? Mm-hmm. There are plenty of people who probably shouldn't be making that claim because they don't have the qualifications to back it up or, or the research to back it up. So just being cognizant of where your expertise is and what's an opinion versus fact. I think if you navigate that all fine, you know, I don't I don't I think it's important to talk about these things, right? Yeah. But you know, it's kind of like the the channel name, right? I I usually opt to be more boring than <laughs> than anything else.
0: Yeah. And and I do I do think that the people who watch directly, I, I scrolled through your comments from time to time. They, they they love that about you. So I think it's it's part of your channel now as well. Uh, yeah, but, it's, it's found a nice niche. But one thing that uh before we move on to using macroeconomics for investing, uh already starting to to go a little bit into the macroeconomics, uh, is I actually think because yes, I think the the bit with you know clickbait and, and getting clicks is is very important on YouTube. But I do think that the the macroeconomy has become more storm-like in the sense that, like it's, it's we're in, we've it seems like we've been and I've I've talked about this with my last guest a little bit, Professor Basemer in in this sort of perfect storm for now, maybe ever ever since the Great Recession, I think you could say. And I wonder. So I think there are a lot of people that are casual investors. They look out to the economy and they see all of you see all of these people getting rich by owning a house, uh, more so than by by earning through a normal job. And they see uh, crypto millionaires overnight, world, whereas they don't actually make something, right? They, they make more than a teacher who, who is, seems to be more valuable to society. They see a central bank that's doing unprecedented actions, uh, inven- interventions in financial markets. So I, I understand where it's coming from. And I think there's, there are also a lot of academics that are actually worried. And I wonder what's the sentiment like in the investment community?
1: In terms of like consensus views, you know, some people are mixed. on On the one hand, uh, to your point, you know, it's not to downplay the we do face real risks, and and that's the thing to to recognize. Right, Mm -hmm. it is a risky economy in terms of you know the pulling back of of stimulative measures that have been in place since two thousand eight in the U.S. primarily. We do live in a very Precarious situation. So there are a lot of investment firms that you know might be reweighting their different sectors and things like that. You don't see, or at least I haven't seen, uh, based on you know our research providers and stuff. And to be you know full disclosure, like I, I work in Ottawa, I'm not a leading bank Wall Street analyst, so I'm not mm-hmm. there talking to Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, you know, on my coffee breaks. But we do get research from you know a number of different providers, and the high economic view. A lot of them aren't painting a picture. Of, of total demise, you know, a lot of them are really just doing moderate reweightings, which genuinely, I think, is usually in, in the investor's best interest.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When times are scary, a lot of investors, they kind of look at it as like a all or nothing, you know, you're either fully invested, or you sell everything and hold in cash for a bit. And depending on your certain on your specific situation, that might be appropriate. Say, if you need to buy a house in a year, all that money is is house money, then, you know, it might make sense to sell everything uh, because you don't have the risk tolerance to wait another year and see where you are because you have this upcoming bill, if you will. For a lot of people who are investing longer term, if you want to take that more active approach, waiting is usually a better method. As opposed to going all or nothing, let's say betting all on you know consumer staples because we're in a, a scary environment. Consumer staples, things like grocery stores yep. uh, and, and utilities uh, is another kind of area. Things that will likely continue seeing strong business demand, even if things slow down because they're, they're required, if you will, they're, they're consumer staples, as, as the name says. Rather than going all into an area like that, you can play it actively and, and tilt a little bit. But it's important to recognize that, you know, we always say that we can't predict the future. We should probably act like it, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. especially around economic news. I mean, I'm sure you're fully familiar that a lot of the data we get about the economy in the current state we're in is lagging. Uh, so by the time we were receiving it, especially gross domestic product is is the best example of that, mm-hmm. um, and unemployment figures, I suppose. A lot of that information is, is lagged where you might already be recovering from it, but you're just now finding out about how low you were a couple months ago. And that can lead to people you know, acting on news that's already stale and actually is misrepresenting the current situation you're in. Yeah. Uh, so to go back to your question, a lot of other analysts and economists from, from the banks that we subscribe to anyway,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not very yeah, they're, they're, they're waiting it. And, and when you talk about like higher growth companies, there is more of a pessimistic view. So whether it be uh, more speculative positions that, you know, just started their business in the last few years, uh, or just, you know, generally higher growth companies, a lot of them are factoring in a slowing growth rate over the next few years, which makes sense. You know, if you expect a slowdown companies that were growing, you know, doubling in, in volume over the next or over the last few years, well, things might slow down as, as households pull back their spending and, and there's kind of more pessimism in, in the economy. But it's, it's really not a all or nothing approach is kind of the main thing of it. So yeah, you see the sensationalist headlines kind of promoting that idea that, yes, it's, it's, it's either prosperity or destruction. A lot of the time it's somewhere in the middle
0: yeah okay okay so that's that is already interesting to me because i think like on the academic side there is a slightly larger. i get the feeling from you from your answer on the academic side there's actually a slightly larger sentiments towards like like proper risk like big risk than uh, in the the professional stock picker research world
1: yeah i I think that's fair to say you know there are certainly you know the term bears in in the market Mm. you know people who who are very doom and gloom i you know there's plenty of, of voices out there, if you will, some people who will advocate buying gold and, and things like that to, to wait for whatever to come. But in truth, on the one hand, we are in unprecedented, you know, situation with quantitative tightening, at least the scale of it, um, and you know, global supply chain issues in China. All that is, is very scary and risky. On the other hand, you know, we have seen stock markets recover and, and continue to prosper through very stressful periods, including the Great Depression. And 2008 financial crisis, obviously because of, of stimulative measures in the latter. Mm-hmm. But it's to say that there's not much of a, a case for arguing the total collapse of, of an economy or or the stock market. Yeah. And you know, even though those two are separate things, obviously there is a connection where if you have the collapse of an economy, it'll probably <laughs> it'll probably hit the the uh, stock market. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Let's go to uh, and and at some point, just to assure everybody, I will also. Uh, we we will also be taking questions from the audience, sure. uh, but before we do, there was a poll I did with the audience uh, stating uh, pretty much like how much macroeconomics or do investors actually need, and then the options were it's like it's very important for most of them, it's only important for a select few, or it's like a little bit of middle of the road. Sure. So, so what what would be your opinion on that? Uh, oh, sorry, the, the 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 result was uh, mostly positive for for that. Hey, you should know macroeconomics, and then. Quite a few people also voted for, it depends on what type of investor you are.
1: Yeah, so to that point, I would say, I, I, I agree to that in the sense that if mm-hmm. you subscribe, you know, let's say you're a fully technical analysis based investor, I wouldn't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that or believe in that approach. But there are schools of investing, you can call them, that pay no attention to that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying all technical is like that, but there are certainly some schools. My own view as, as a fundamental investor anyway someone and, who and buys, technical investing
0: is is basically looking at the chart right and, and searching yeah, for so, patterns
1: yeah <laughs> so a quick um, very quick summary of, of technical analysis technical analysis is the belief that the price of a stock reflects all the information you need about that company it's sort of a quasi efficient market kind of basis in the sense that you know well if a company's trading at this level it's because that's what the market has deemed it worth mm-hmm. so therefore the only price a data point we need is the price of that stock the problem with that is that there's not a whole lot of research that supports the notion that technical analysis actually helps you and a lot of the time it's just people trying to superimpose patterns onto historical data sets and you know you can see there's a joke that you know if you take 10 technical analysts they'll point out 10 different price patterns for the same stock chart yeah uh, so it's kind of a you know I don't want to say there's no merit in it because there are technical indicators I think are helpful to have an eye on because they can tell you if the market is you know aggressively buying a stock or selling a stock. And there are insights provided by that. But it's to say that someone who focuses solely on that, it's really limiting your insight into the companies you buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certainly approaches that try to... <laughs> a lot of online courses will talk about technical analysis because it's easiest to convince people uh, and there's a lot of snake oil yeah. in that space. So it's a very tricky landscape to navigate, but regardless, so that's technical analysis. Yeah, and but fundamental before analysis, we
0: move to fundamental yeah. analysis, uh, there's one thing that you said that, that surprised me a little bit in the sense that you said like this comes a little bit from an efficient market perspective. But I always figured that technical analysis is sort of anti-efficient market because if you assume the price is right now, then there's no reason to expect a
1: pattern. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of quasi for it in the sense that some aspects argue for it, some argue against it. It Mm -hmm. argues for it in the sense that the technical analyst, uh, in terms of pure technical analyst, doesn't believe that you will get any helpful information from researching the underlying company. Right, That uh, that all that information will be reflected. Mm -hmm. What they instead believe is that the prices of stocks will follow trends and uh, that it's more so buyer and seller behavior that matters. So that's kind of the the distinction there. Mm. I think a true subscriber to efficient market hypothesis would believe that trends don't necessarily exist either. Yeah, there shouldn't um, be a trend so
0: because you know that should already be efficient. reflected in the, in the price.
1: Exactly. So that's where they differentiate. Is is mm. kind of the now there is actually funny enough. I was talking to Ben Felix, who uh, another Canadian finance YouTuber, and he was talking about how there's a famous five factor Fama French model, which is kind of the passive investors or one of the, the more passive approaches to analyzing stocks. Yeah, and they look at what They're, five factors again? Do you remember? Uh, you know what? I never know them off the top of my uh, head. But uh, One yeah, or it's, two, it's, like
0: small caps or something like that, right? Small, small caps,
1: value in the sense of the of company's price to its book value. It's basically five factors that try to explain, to explain why a company is trading at the price it is. So there is value in kind of understanding those factors. And mm-hmm. recently they, they released a new iteration with the sixth variable, which is momentum, uh, which is Kind of funny enough, that trend aspect of if a stock has done well in the past, mm-hmm. uh, is this kind of bleeding into the future performance? And I, I think he said something along the lines of, of uh, you know the, the guy who added this reluctantly added it to the model because it sort of went against the uh, yeah. theory behind efficient because
0: that is pure that's pure behavioral finance momentum it is, is, it a is behavioral finance kind of uh, And that's where the factor. two
1: and I would say actually, funny enough, even mm-hmm. though I believe in behavioral finance and not inherently pure technical analysis, that's another area where the two might differentiate is efficient market kind of explains things through risk variables, people who don't believe or, you know, anomalies can arise because of behavioral variables. So it's just how do you explain what you see in the market, you can explain it from a risk perspective, or you can explain it from a behavioral perspective of, you know, people are doing it because the risk, There are risk takers who are willing to take that and therefore they get rewarded. And then there's behavioral who say, no, this just happens because people are not good at it at investing or become overconfident or or whatever have you. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually seeing the comment now someone shared the the factors. Thank you for sharing them. I, oh, I awesome. so I think it shows my my hand. I don't use the five factor model yeah. <laughs> in my job. Yeah. I but I I have, you know, it is a it's it's a quite popular model. Uh, it's a, a finance
0: 101 thing, right? So, I uh, we're going to get yeah. to economics, but if you want to learn finance, uh definitely learn about the five factor model, learn about uh, technical analysis, which is following charts, and then momentum, which means if the stock goes up, it will continue to go up. If it goes
1: down, it will continue to go down. Yeah.
0: But you're a fundamental investor. Yeah. And what's that? So
1: fundamental investing, you know, people love to point out Warren Buffett as like the, the face of that movement, uh, but it's kind of just investing with the, the thought of, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're just buying a business. So the analogy I like to put is, is if you were to buy a convenience store or gas station, well would you as an everyday person look to understand before you made that decision? You know, you probably wouldn't care. Maybe you would, but you wouldn't put as much merit into what it traded for in the past. Mm -hmm. You probably care a lot more about, you know, how much money do they make? Who are their suppliers? Do their employee base cost? That's fundamental analysis is just trying to understand a business and seeing whether you want to own it as a investor. So it's on the one hand, it's a lot more qualitative than a lot of other, like quantitative investing, which is sort of a, a third school of thought, and actually uh, what Patrick Boyle would himself describe himself as, mm-hmm. uh, focuses mm. on backing out relationships using data analysis of quantitative variables. So basically, kind of just doing a bunch of regressions, if you will, and seeing where are the correlations, and can we use this to exploit a, a you know and make a profit from trading?
0: Yeah, and fundamental- these, these are fundamental variables then, or it
1: doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. A true quantitative analysis probably will look at anything, including even technical variables. Really, it just focuses on taking quantitative factors that you can analyze and regress, and seeing what relationships exist and what's statistically significant, and whether that can be used on a forward-looking basis to trade or invest. And I think there's there's a lot of interesting work that's done there. And actually, with a conversation with Patrick himself, mm-hmm. one thing he pointed out is that in doing that, you see that there's never a consistent relationship that investors can exploit yeah so it's not like you do a quantitative analysis and find the golden formula that you know sets you for life that you just find this one piece then you can go sit on a beachfront and and have this you know robot trade for you it's constantly changing the markets are constantly changing the relationships between these variables because partly to your point macroeconomic factors greatly change the situation and how different variables might interact with one another yeah you know A low interest rate environment versus a high interest rate environment might actually change how different variables react and what investors reward or what investors punish, if you will, from public stocks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and if you're a (laughs) a quantitative investor, right, then you're running an algorithm typically, or you you might also do that. And it might like you you might be in 2007 and you've backtested 10 years, and the best thing to do is actually invest in houses, but then it crashes completely well, then maybe you could have seen momentum. But when then the central bank intervenes, your backtested algorithm could never have spotted that, no matter how good mm-hmm. your data was, because that never happened before.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of a point to keep in mind, is especially on the long term. And I think a lot of quantitative investors would agree to this, is that similar to not finding a golden formula, you probably won't find something that shows you a long-term relationship that you can rely on. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the, outside the fact that there's just more data to support shorter-term relationships, if you will. It's just, I think, you know, people aren't blind to the shortcomings of their own approach. Just like as a fundamental investor, I'm well aware of the shortcomings of, of that school of thought. But for quantitative investors, I think a lot of the time it's, it's more short-term focused as opposed to, say, buying and holding positions for five years. I'm not a quantitative investor myself, strictly speaking. I would assume that's unlikely to, to see buy and hold strategies in that realm.
0: Yeah, but you are a qualitative, a fundamental investor. And so you look at the fundamentals yeah. of company, look at their price and see if the two match up, roughly speaking.
1: Yeah, so I, I say there is you know, a quantitative aspect to it. You, you do obviously look at their finances, but it's more so qualitative in the sense of you know really understanding the variables that impact the business and whether you think those variables will continue, whether you think they'll improve or deteriorate. So there are judgment calls that come with fundamental analysis. But I think at the end of the day, what draws me to that function is is it just makes a lot of intuitive or logical sense because you can it's more tangible than the other two I would say in the sense that you know again if you look at investing which is what it is of buying a business you know technical analysis looks at buying stocks as price tickers uh, quantitative analysis kind of looks at it as a bunch of variables that will determine whether you make money or not fundamental analysis looks at buying an underlying business and whether you think it will do well over time or not. So there are qualitative features to it. Certainly subjective calls, kind of similar. You know, I can't be all that rude towards technical analysis because you could probably get 10 fundamental analysts in a room and they'd probably say roughly 10 different things about the same company because mm. a lot of it is subjective. But one approach that I've kind of learned from my company is it's really focusing on companies that you you like the return potential, but also capping the amount of risk you're willing to take. And that risk can be on the side of debt, you know, as opposed to buying a bankrupt company or a company that's very close to bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that there's, there's certainly approaches that would actually focus on bankruptcies and stuff because there is a large return potential. But that's where you get to more lottery like positions where, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a
0: distressed debt markets and all of that stuff.
1: Yeah. You know, heads, heads it makes you a big return. Tails, you lose everything. So we, we try to avoid those situations. Yeah, We do a bit of diversification, nothing too crazy. Yeah. But, you know, as opposed to just buying five or 10 positions, which is kind of what Warren Buffett and Manish Puppet and a lot of famous investors advocate for, we might hold a bit more than that. But it's really just, you know, that, that core belief of of investing in businesses that you like, they think the finances look good. And importantly, the, that the valuation makes sense because how much you pay for a stock is is just as important as whether the stock is actually a good company yeah. because if you have an exceptional business but you pay an above exceptional price you could actually still lose money on that same position yeah so that's and this kind of is
0: one of the key things about investing right uh, that people don't appreciate enough perhaps mm-hmm. because it's it's rather simple right if you say it like that uh, everybody's like yeah sure But for example, what I noticed once myself as an economist that we had invited an investor in one of the macro classes, international finance, that we taught, and Mm. he said, "Like we use some of your your models. We use uh, the impossible uh, trinity, which is a concept in macroeconomics that you cannot have central bank independence, a fixed exchange rate, and free capital flows. That's that's a concept, Mm. and you can use that model." To, to look at a country and, for example, if you use that model on Sri Lanka, you could have seen, like, hey, something's got to give here. They had a, a fixed exchange rate. They, they, they like, wanted monetary independence, but, uh, and they had capital, fly, uh, you know, free capital. Uh, and th- that, that can truly break an economy. But uh, what he then told me as well is that, uh, that most of the students in that economics class, and I'll admit, myself included, uh, for, for a brief moment of weakness... Uh, we're thinking like, hey, oh yeah, what are weak countries, right? And we're not going to invest in that. But that's wrong, right? It's like, hey, what are weak countries that are cheap and we're going to mm-hmm. invest in them? Or what are uh, strong countries but are, are overpriced, right? Or what are weak countries and are, are expensive and short them? But yeah.
1: And that's the thing is, is, you know, to the point about investing in bankrupt companies, you can make a killing in that space. And it's not to say that, I don't think it's an invalid approach to investing. And, you know, Warren Buffett famous, his first approach to investing was what he called the cigar butt approach, which was the idea of getting one last puff out of whatever he bought in. And there were times where he would make money even if the company went bankrupt. Because, for example, the assets of the company, so you know their factories, their real estate, whatever they had, was actually worth more than what the stock was trading for. So even if the company goes bust, if they liquidate everything and push that money back to the investors, you could still make a return. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind is certainly, you know, what a lot of people have seen over time is that markets tend to, and this is a broad statement. So, you know, there are obviously exceptions, Mm -hmm. but generally speaking, markets tend to overvalue excellent positions and tend to undervalue uh, distressed positions. So if you can find those positions that are distressed, but have, you know, potential to, at the bare minimum, even just stay afloat, but are valued even less than that, then you could still make a profit if that normalizes back up to even a distressed level. Uh, So that's, that's the thing is even within fundamental analysis, there are totally, you know, a wide array of different approaches to investing. Some people who are a lot more willing to take riskier approaches when it comes to debt restructurings and whatever have you. Mm -hmm. For us, though, you know, a lot of the time we're managing money for households that aren't looking to make, you know, hundreds of percent of return and really are focused on risk. Like you'd be surprised how many millionaires just don't want capital. To be depleted. Like, mm. like they just want their money to grow a little bit without much risk. Yeah. Which you would, which is actually opposite to what you would expect because you would think, well, you, you have the more money you have, the more risk you're willing to take on. A lot of the time, the clients we deal with, if you know, if they're an everyday Joe who, you know, either worked up the corporate ladder and got a good position and makes a lot of money, whether they be they be a business owner, mm-hmm. a lot of the times they just want to set their finances and forget it. And they mm. don't want to check their statement, and see that they're down 50%, even if it means that they'll be up 100% next year, or whatever have you. So yeah. A lot of people focus on risk, which, funny enough, can be a, yeah, a detriment. <laughs> but yeah. uh, all to say that, it's... Uh,
0: and then they come to you, the, on the riskless uh, plain bagel.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm riskless. Um, I would just say that when it comes to things, there are certain types of risks risk that I'm not willing to take. There are risks that we take, you know, you wouldn't make any money if you didn't take any risk. So there are risks that you have to take. The thing, though, is to balance that risk with your tolerance and to keep in mind the risk of a position relative to every other position you own in your portfolio. Yeah. If, for correlation, example... Correlation, you mean? Yeah, or, correlation. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, if you think of diversification, trying to find positions that are uncorrelated, you don't want everything to fall at the same time because of the same risk factor. So one that you know we saw over the last few years, a lot of people jumped into tech stocks, High growth companies. And then now that interest rates are rising, all those positions are very highly, you know, the whole market is down. Yeah. But the ones that have fallen the most are those high growth tech focused positions. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of a, from a risk perspective, you really shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, even when it comes to sector diversification. So you can take risk, but don't be arc investors, is what you're too. saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's yeah that's an example. I wasn't gonna name drop, but yeah,
0: yeah, I can, I can as an, an academic, guy, I can just just say say stuff that business people off more than you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, I think I can talk it against uh, money managers, but yeah, Ark Invest is a, is an interesting one because I remember you know Tesla is a, a bad example because they they're they're actually up if you look over the past few years. Yes, they're down currently from their all time high, but they've done mm. well over the last few years. But I remember reading Ark's research report on Tesla. And this was before the recent share split. So right now, pre share split, they're between six hundred and seven hundred dollars. And I remember their bear case for Tesla was thirteen hundred dollars. And I was like, no, that's not that's not what bear case means. Mm. <laughs> bear case is bad. You can't say our worst case scenario is Tesla doubling.
0: <laughs> but my <laughs> so, worst case scenario for Bitcoin is one hundred thousand uh, dollars, Richard.
1: Ex- there, well, hey, that sounds like a great investment thesis. But like, <laughs> that's the thing is, uh, you know. I yeah. think their approach, I think they didn't hire many financial analysts. I think they were trying to take the approach of, uh, hey, well, and, you know, if you bring engineers and if you bring uh, tech specialists and you put them into an investment team, you might outperform the market. Mm. And I think uh, the Renaissance Fund is a famous hedge fund that you know consistently outperformed the markets for a number of years. And I think that was actually their approach is they hired PhDs and academics as opposed to your Wall Street analysts. And I have a feeling that Tesla might uh, sorry, not Tesla. I feel that ARC might have been trying to replicate that. You know, mm-hmm. hey, if we hire outside people to think differently, and then there's validity mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. But then I think they also, their models might have been a little flimsy because of that. You know, I think they, they might have just wanted to have at least one stock guy <laughs> to be like, hey, this model doesn't make sense.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or let them watch the plain bagel to at least get the basics, right?
1: At least, yeah. I mean, just a little, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it would have helped. I
0: don't know. <laughs> hey, so, I have a small question about sort of markets, fundamental investing, tech technical investing. But for that, I think we should open the floor to the audience sure. before we yep. also get still. We still need to talk about all the macroeconomic stuff. Sure. But I think this, well, it's been very insightful, at least for me, to learn a little bit about how you actually operate as an investor. So, sure. if there are any questions, I'll just, uh, what I'll do, Richard, is just, I'll just go through the questions uh, and I'll look for. Or some, or can, or can you see them as well?
1: I do have them up, oh. so I can definitely. Well, you can
0: if you now. No, let me know what do you prefer. Do you want me to pick some one or, or I'll
1: say you you go ahead and pick some because I also don't know what you'll talk about in the future uh, later on. So oh,
0: but that doesn't matter. That that doesn't matter. So, so <laughs> I'll just pick one, and then and then you can pick one. Uh, sure, because uh, I think for for you it's a little bit of a novelty that people can directly talk to you, right? You don't. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. Like I, 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 I'm in. I'm behind my gilded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my castle most of the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the untouchable Richard. Uh, okay, so I do have an easy question here uh, already, sure. which I think uh, is indeed uh, interesting. Because you were talking, I think I'm, I'm just doing the context myself, but uh, <laughs> sure. because you were, I, I, I think this question is asked because you were talking about credentials. Richard, what are your credentials? It's asked by yeah, brainstorm5556. I mean, five, five, five,
1: <laughs> yeah, that, and uh, I would say you should always be asking that question, uh, especially if someone's ever given you a stock pick. I think that's an important one is is what are their credentials? Um, so my credentials are kind of the, the two important ones, I guess, would be uh, chartered financial analyst designation. So CFA, it's, it's kind of the, it's really the only, I, I don't want to call it gold standard because it's kind of tooting my own horn, but uh, it's one of the only kind of broad based accreditations out there in the world of finance. That's globally recognized. Uh, there are a few others, but that's kind of the the broadest one, if you will. I also have my Certified Financial Planner uh, designation, which is a bit more generalist. Touches on things like insurance, taxes, and things like that. So even though I focus on investing, I did take that because uh, you know when you have a client, an investment client, they sometimes bring up questions about insurance and stuff. So that's more of a, a generalist uh, one. But outside that, uh, bachelor's in finance and not an education credential, but, as I mentioned, uh, fully uh, I see questions, yes, the CFA is is what I'm saying.
0: yeah, and um, experience right as an as an analyst yeah,
1: so I, I've been working in finance in the industry. I graduated in twenty fifteen, I believe, so since then I've been working in the industry as an analyst for seven or eight years, and more recently, fully registered over the past two years as a portfolio manager which in Canada anyway, I'm not fully sure how the registration works in different countries. But in Canada, it's one of the highest levels of, of registration you can get on the advisor side is to be a fully registered portfolio manager. It basically just means that if I took on a client, I could buy them any type of position on a discretionary basis, meaning that you could just put money into an account and I can do all the work for you. There are different levels where you have to call the person and they have to confirm every time you buy. So those are the, and it's different in the U.S. I think again, not to my own horn. I think it is easier in the U.S. I think after the mm-hmm. Series Seven, a lot of people can get to that same position. But th- so those are my those are my. Oh,
0: that's features. interesting. So so when when I finally uh, have some money that that I I have to to invest rather than in my own YouTube channel or my house, uh, I should look for a Canadian uh, advisor, <laughs> not a U.S. based sure. one.
1: I I, yeah, I don't want to crap talk the the U.S. system. Well, this you, you just on- did. A little bit, <laughs> yeah. That's my perception of it. I don't know a whole lot about the process. I just know that it was a it was a pain to get my registration. And mind you, there are different routes. I believe in Canada, even you can take the CFA. I believe there is another route through maybe the CIM designation, uh, which I believe is a Canadian one. But all to say that, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, with anyone, there's more to it than just the credentials. You know, I think it is important to find someone that. You know, aligns with your values. You know, if you find someone who's out there buying tech stocks and stuff, they might be fully accredited and everything, but, you know, if they're doing a different investment approach and you just, you know, want to sit on your investments and and earn a reasonable return, that's important to consider as well in terms of, and, you know, experience and stuff. So there's a lot to consider when choosing a financial analyst. I think, you know, I think Canada is a bonus, but I think we do. Canada actually has a pretty well regarded finance sector. Even though we're closely tied to the U.S. with 2008, Canada did really well throughout that that whole debacle because our banks, anyway, had more strict lending practices than the U.S. did. It still hurt, but you know, you didn't see property values collapse like they did in the U.S. Not yet. Not, not yet. <laughs> hey, you know what? I have some friends looking to buy a house who uh, wouldn't be too upset if if that was the case.
0: Yeah, but it takes typically a crash takes a couple of years, though.
1: The tricky thing with with real estate too. It's easy to oversimplify it and say, yes, interest rates are rising, therefore housing prices will go down. There is still a, a fundamental supply and demand side to it, right? And, you know, Canada has very strong immigration, has very limited supply in in cities like Toronto and, and even here in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, interest rates will have a downward pressure onto demand. It itself might not be what, what crashes that market if there's still that underlying, you know, if people are still coming to Canada in troves. People still need housing.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, that's definitely something that's quite unique about uh, Canada. It's uh, the amount of immigration uh, that they 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 let into the happen, right? Talk about macroeconomics. No? That's that's one factor. Then, right, immediately like uh, population dynamics, a very well-known macroeconomic factor, extremely important in the property market, uh, and also fairly mm. important in in many other markets, I would guess.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, I don't know if I actually answered your question about the importance of macro economics with investing, but I would say... No, I haven't asked
0: it yet. We were basically going off a tangent after after talking about your
1: credentials. (laughs) Well, so uh, to answer it quickly anyway, uh, I would say based on my own approach, again, as a fundamental investor, you can put different weights on macro. For sure, I would think it's silly for anyone to not have a basic understanding of macro because you can see firsthand how drastically the stock performance changes under different situations. Bitcoin, tech stocks, high growth companies, uh, all did exceptionally well when stimulus measures were there and all have since done exceptionally poorly as those stimulus measures are taken away. Now, it's not to oversimplify it. You know, there are other variables to consider. Yep. But clearly, there's some uh, correlation there that makes intuitive sense. You know, for someone to invest and not have any comprehension of, of what quantitative tightening is or what, how rising rates impact the stock market, you're really handicapping yourself in terms of uh, researching socks, right? Mm -hmm. People take different approaches. Again, even within fundamental, you can do, there's like top-down and and bottom-up. So top-down research is when you say, okay, let's look at all the macroeconomic factors. So, you know, you mentioned Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. uh, the US, Canada. So you look at all these countries and you say, okay, well, Sri Lanka is in a troubled spot. Canada, you know, they have their hockey teams haven't won the NHL, uh, Stanley up in a while, so whatever, uh, and let's focus on the U.S. Then from there, they might say, okay, what sectors do well within the U.S.? And it's kind of this, well, bottom, uh, top-down approach where you go based on geography and sector, and then once you decide which industries you want to invest in, then you pick stocks that you like. So that's a very macro-focused approach because yeah. you say, well, based on You start with macro
0: and work your right way down to the stocks
1: exactly. that you like. Yeah. Bottom-up does the opposite approach where first they consider the fundamentals of the company and say, well, I like, you know, I just say Google because it's one of the easiest to think of mm-hmm. and because we're both YouTubers, so it's uh, not a recommendation, but just an one that comes to mind. Yeah. Well, I, I, let's say I like Google. I like how much money they make. blah. blah, blah, blah. then I might consider the macroeconomic factors after the fact and mm-hmm. that might tilt my positions, but I've already mm-hmm. decided what my focus of stocks will be.
0: Yeah. So, that's so a you selected the basket function. and then you can look at the macro stuff and maybe remove a couple from the basket.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you, and you, like macro matters for individual companies as well. And the funny enough, you can get kind of a macro view, even just from bottom-up analysis, because a lot of the time, uh, company management will tell you about how the macroeconomic environment is impacting their business. They'll talk about foreign exchange, how that's impacting their profitability. They'll talk about inflation rates. You know, that's a big one. You'll see it all over transcripts of, well, how is it? And a lot of uh, earnings calls, they'll open the, kind of like this, they'll open the mic to, to viewers. And ask for questions for management. And a lot of the questions are, how is inflation impacting you? Are you mm-hmm. seeing your costs rise? Are you passing those costs off to investors? So it's, even if you take a bottom-up approach, you get a very... You see a lot of macroeconomics in the investment analysis process because it's its important. Like, <laughs> that's as simple as it is. it is. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of factors to consider as well. Yeah. I wouldn't want to oversimplify something and say, when interest rates rise sell stocks or, or whatever because I think that's way too oversimplified and, and not historically speaking correct in all contexts but for sure there's an influence there you know you can c- consider it as one downwards arrow amongst a, a, yeah. a crowd one of, factors. of um, up and down arrows exactly yeah.
0: yeah so I'm when I'm listening because I had one question in mind it's like Let's say there are some some investors watching, but they they had a, a background in engineering or maybe in pure finance or business or whatever, and they they don't know too much about macroeconomics. What mm-hmm. would you think? Like, what's the stuff? Like, what should you, besides of course, watching money macro, look for? Uh, what are the topics? So, is it? I heard you talk about exchange rates. Uh, that, that's probably mostly important for people like you who, have, who are living in a country with a, its own currency that's relatively small compared to the US, or if you invest in any of, of those countries. Uh, but mm-hmm. also I heard you mention inflation, is super important. How central banks work, basically, right? Because they have such a massive mm-hmm. impact on the market course, yeah. these days. Uh, maybe sort of the basics of business cycles and GDP. Am I, am I missing... Uh, am I yeah, missing I mean, them? at a high
1: level... That that makes sense, right? Like is like obviously you should have some understanding of, of economies, recessions, things like that. And and uh to all the points you mentioned, you know, central bank action is important. Uh I would say interest rates are, are kind of the, the core one there. Quantitative easing and tightening is sort of an extension of that. So I think those are important ones to understand, especially in the current environment. Those are really hot topics. Inflation is one, but even just kind of more basic factors to consider as well, you know, things like unemployment. Things like household debt is is one to consider. Mm. yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a business that relies on consumers, well, you should see how healthy the consumer is, the average consumer is. And interestingly, we're kind of in this space where currently a lot of economists are saying the consumer is very healthy, but also their debt's really high. <laughs> you know, it's kind of this this two and two. Mm-hmm. A lot of economists that I've read anyway from our providers are saying that household budgets are, are have a bit of a cushion, I guess. Uh, So pandemic savings from not traveling, from uh, saving on commutes and stimulus measures, those have offered a bit of a buffer to help with the rising costs of debt and things like that. But we also have a, a, you know, historically high debt load for households or even companies and of course the government. So debt's kind of a, it's an interesting one because it's such a fundamental component to every economy, virtually every economy around the world. So I think having some eye to the health of the consumer and debt levels that in general are, is important as well. But you really, you know, you did touch on it, like exchange rates. And I, I would actually argue, even though Canada, very important here, because even though, as with a lot of countries, there is a country bias uh, with investors. Mm-hmm. We probably invest more in Canadian stocks than any other country yeah. because there are incentives and things like that. Uh, and it's sort of this familiarity, right? If you live in a city, you might understand more about the business culture and stuff. Mm-hmm. But we invest heavily in the U.S. as well. It's easily, and as with a lot of countries, the second largest uh, portfolio allocation will be to the U.S. So obviously, exchange rates really matters there. And you know, Canada's basically moved from being at par with the U.S. to being around kind of the seventy-five cent range now, a bit less actually. Action- when,
0: less when, century. when? Since when? Since uh, after the pandemic, or
1: since after the pandemic? It's it's varied, but the U.S. dollar currently is doing very well. During, so during the pandemic and currently, they're definitely not at par. The Canadian dollar is worth less than the U.S. dollar on a dollar mm-hmm. for dollar basis. Uh, last I checked, it was a dollar thirty Canadian for U.S. dollar. So, but interestingly, the you know during parts of the pandemic, the do, the Canadian dollar did well because we're an oil based economy, um, or at least that's oil is a very heavy component. For real estate and finance are as well, but
2: oh yeah, oil is
1: yeah. a very big part of our economy. Yeah. So. You know, when we have oil prices surging past 120, the Canadian dollar did quite well because obviously oil is a big export of ours. And if uh, oil prices are higher, the Canadian economy might make more money. It's since moderated and oil prices have come down. They're now currently under $100 a barrel. I think they're around $90 a barrel mm-hmm. uh, on the West Texas interme- uh, Intermediate. But all to say that exchange rates matter a lot for Canada. I think they matter for other investors, too. And like I mentioned, I would say the majority of of at least, say, S&P 500 positions, US-based positions that have international operations. So it still matters for even, again, a bottom-up investor is, you know, companies like Google, companies like Microsoft, these big companies, they have a lot of international presence. And a lot of time, you know, they'll say, you know, we did well this quarter, but FX, the foreign exchange, was a, you know, had a negative 2% 2% impact on our earnings. Like that's how oh, yeah. they'll speak yeah. about their earnings. So it still matters for uh, even kind of the more domestic investors who might not care much about, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we're a very globalized economy these days. So it's, it's kind of hard to avoid that impact. It's still important to understand, I would think.
0: Yeah, it reminds me actually of uh, when I used to live briefly in South Africa. I I was looking into, hey, maybe I can now invest in the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. And then uh, I was looking into it a little bit because I was thinking at the time we had this uh, in South Africa new president coming in, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. It looked hopeful, especially compared to the the disaster of the president that came before. Uh, and so I figured, you know what, I might be getting a little bit bullish on the uh, South African economy and importantly, sticking to your investor fundamentals. I think the uh, South African economy might be underpriced, mm-hmm. right? But then I, I was looking into this and, and this is another thing that I, now we're talking about what I got from investing, but uh, classes uh, or finance Uh mm-hmm. I was thinking, hey, maybe I should look at the of, at the correlation of the Tilburg Stock Exchange with the South African economy. And then I found out, like, if you buy just a purely index of South Africa, right? That's a Johannesburg mm-hmm. Stock Exchange. You're not buying the South African economy. What you're buying is uh, a long position in commodities because it's just so heavily, you have these massive mining companies. The stock exchange is just so massively exposed to the, the global economy that... Uh, no, does does that story make make sense to you uh, as an investor?
1: Yeah, and, and like you know, kind of talking about Canada, I think you would very likely see this a similar correlation with with oil, right? Um, mm-hmm. When oil is doing well, we we get a better our trade deficit imp- uh, improves. You would just see those variables impact uh, how the country as a whole is performing because oil and real estate and finances are so important to the economy. And you know, funny enough, uh, Canada has a very small tech and healthcare sector. So, you know, you can invest in, in tech and healthcare in Canada, but the broad index is very heavily weighted towards energy, finances, and real estate would be kind of some of the biggest ones. So, yeah, and, and you know, at the end of the day, too, I've t- kind of touched on on my channel. There's also some separation between the economy and, and the stock market as well. Like the stock market is still just a subset of the broader economy. So even within biased economy if you like towards sectors if you will you mm-hmm. can have even more bias at the stock market level because you know in canada for example we don't have many uh or a very large healthcare uh public market system because uh we have uh, public health care <laughs> you know it's it's not as profitable of an industry but there might be mm-hmm. private companies that that aren't listed on the public stock exchange that aren't reflected in that so i'll just say that yeah it's 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 hard to over and that's the tricky thing about investing is there's rarely a situation where one factor makes something a good investment case. Uh, you know, something like, uh, well, I think this country is going to do well. That might not be enough to to justify buying a company. It's always worth considering all the fundamentals of of the underlying businesses as well. And to your point, all the different economic variables.
0: Yeah. And hey, do you maybe have like uh, talking about this? Do you maybe have some
1: concrete examples
0: for us? And I know that you're bound by some. By, you, you know, you being an investor, but maybe you can say like, oh, I once," because I'm especially interested in when you have made an investment, but uh, you have been surprised and it would be even like gold if that was through macroeconomic factors, but other ones are also interesting. Like you were taken off guard, right? So something happened that you didn't expect and you learned a valuable lesson from from that. Do you have some something like that?
1: Yeah, uh, I have a few. Yeah, I have a few I could talk about. Like one, for example, at at a macroeconomic factor level, for example, is oil and gas is is an easy one. Obviously, it's a very important industry here in Canada. In 2015 or so, or shortly thereafter 2015, from 2017 to 2018 was the peak of it. There's a bit of an oil glut in the U.S. that heavily impacted the Canadian market. Basically, U.S. companies discovered, hey, we can efficiently and economically extract shale oil. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you think of it, there's a big rock. There's all these tiny droplets of oil spread throughout the rock through engineering you know, methods and, and what's you know fracking and things like that. They discovered that, hey, we can actually draw that oil out very effectively. And all of a sudden, you had shale oil companies popping up left, right, and center within the U.S. and greatly increasing production. That had a huge negative impact on Canadian markets because all of a sudden, there's this oversupply And the U.S. is Canada's primary buyer of oil. So if the U.S. has enough oil itself, they're not going to buy as much Canadian oil. And that was actually early at my current company, early in my position as an investment analyst, that that was happening. I was very much assuming that, you know, general supply and demand factors, oil companies will rebound very quickly, blah, 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 because uh, you have an oversupply, that'll make companies unprofitable. So, hey, if we focus on companies that have manageable debt, can manage through this, they'll be okay. Um, you know, seven years later, uh, it's it's still a pretty pain-stricken area. Mm. Uh, companies have done very well over the last couple of years in oil and gas. Mm-hmm. But from back to 2017 or 18, they're most likely still down. And, you know, part of that is the pandemic, which impacts oil demand. But even though the price of oil is now higher than it was back in 2018, stock prices are still a third of what they were back then. So, it goes to show that's like i said it's, I've kind of learned it's not as simple as just well, if oil prices go up, then companies will do well. there's a bit more to it and i mean like i'm I'm not afraid to share my my failures as well. There's a lot of times I've learned that even fundamental analysis isn't necessarily enough to you know prove that the that you'll do well with the position. One example there's this one company, I forget the name of the company, but it was a smart uh, security camera company, mm-hmm. so they basically sold. Uh, security cameras that use AI to monitor you know shopping centers and stuff, yeah. to point out, hey, like this car's acting suspiciously or or whatever have you, and I remember saying that we should definitely not buy this company because every year they changed their definition of profit, so to me, that was a mm-hmm. massive red flag of mm-hmm. well, that's a lot of risk, you know I don't the the integrity of management is a pretty important factor, you know again, that goes back to kind of the Warren Buffett school of thought of if you don't know a lot about a company. At the very least, if you know that's run by honest and, and hardworking people, you know that you'll probably be in good hands. Mm. Uh, so, to me, anything that shows me that management doesn't respect the investor or doesn't care about the investor, it's usually a red flag that will make me not want to buy it. Yeah. And yet, you know, a <laughs> year after I made this recommendation, even though I had what I would call uh, this the smoke around uh, this position, ended up being acquired, and I think it jumped in value by like fifty percent uh, because a comp- another company purchased it. Yeah. So okay. it went to show that, mm-hmm. you know, you can actually have a very strong thesis against or for. And we didn't short the position, you know, I don't short positions, but we didn't buy this position itself. Yeah. But it still made money for those who bought it. So that's the tricky thing about stocks, is is I and I think I spoke to one of the partners at my company afterwards, and he said something along the lines of like Richard, you might see smoke. It doesn't mean you'll find a smoking gun. So it's not to say that you should ignore suspicious activity it's mm-hmm. just to say that the market is is a fickle thing it's yeah. really tricky to um to do well even if you have very sound research you know there's nothing that i could have done to predict that another company was going to purchase it yeah but you know it's it's a known unknown i guess is is the way to think of it there are risks you can know and that you can measure there are risks that you have no idea might even happen you know black swans things like that
0: yeah and this okay so i have a question about this but i do remember that i don't think you have actually Looked at a question, yeah. So maybe we can uh, in between see if someone else also has a question about all of Richard's investment failures, which there are very few, of course.
1: Yeah, I, I see one question here uh, from Supernova. Doesn't Canada have something similar to GAAP reporting? So gap being the accounting rule set that the U.S. uses. Canada uses IFRS, so International Financial Reporting Standards. Uh, funny enough, I actually read this book a long time ago called Easy Pre-Investing that talked about why Canada's IFRS system was very lacking. And really just argued that the US has the best accounting system and Canada's gives a lot of benefit of doubt to management, meaning that management gets a lot of discretion in terms of how they classify different items, which can very greatly impact their earnings, which is important to consider as well as, you know, kind of same thing with investing. And so what makes it complicated is sometimes you have to be skeptical of even the numbers that they give you, to say, well, could they have fudged these numbers somehow? Could they have done something that might have uh, altered this a bit? And it's why you know having an understanding of all accounting statements, not just the income statement is important, because a lot of the time, an income statement, the shortcomings of the income statement, you might be able to pick up in the balance sheet or the cash flow statement. It's why it's, it's good to have a fully rounded view of, of things. But that book, uh, Easy Pre-Investing, I can't remember the author, but it's by these people who are forget the term, but basically investigative accountants so they oh, yeah. basically yep. investigate uh forensic accountants that's the term
2: mm. oh, yeah. um,
1: so they they investigate fraud through accounting statements, so it was a really interesting book, and they like their full time job is is auditing and, and finding shortcomings and things like that. but the nice thing about the book is they kind of highlighted some you know practical things for for identifying uh, not necessarily identifying but things to look for basically when it comes to researching companies and making sure that they aren't pulling a quick one on you because there are companies out, there, you know, I, I don't go into investing assuming that every company is trying to screw me over, mm-hmm. but they certainly exist. <laughs> you know, there are certainly companies out there yeah. that are just trying to take investors' money. And
0: there're super famous cases, right? Like Wirecard in Germany and Enron in the United States, like all mm-hmm. of these companies I would guess if you're as a fundamental investor but you don't understand accounting or you don't dig a little deeper and just look at the accounting fundamentals they look super healthy, no?
1: Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Is If you take things at face value, they would look very healthy. But then there are checks you can do. You, know, you can check their cash flow statement and not just look at the total amounts. But if you go line item by line item, you can dig a bit deeper to understand, okay, why are the figures looking the way they do? And one thing I see a lot, actually, uh, especially with a lot of growth companies, a lot of people don't know how to deal with share-based compensation and things like that, which is mm-hmm. basically a company paying employees with its own stock. A lot of people kind of ignore that when analyzing a, a company, even though that's a huge thing to consider because when times are like these, when stock prices depress, all of a sudden those employees might be demanding cash payments as opposed to stock options and things like that. Not to mention there's dilution and things. Uh, but all to say that if you don't fully understand how to consider share-based compensation, you might look at a cash flow statement and say, hey, this company doing really well they're making all this cash. The only reason they're making that cash the way they are, though, might be because they're not paying their employees cash. They're paying them stock options. And it's still something to consider. So there's a (laughs) lot. I always say that accounting, if I can give uh, casual investors who want to research a stock a tip, I would say take some sort of formal accounting training. It it really is important. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can learn at a base level on YouTube. I, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to be said for taking some sort of formal course that forces you to do examples to practice because accounting is re- like you know there's a reason that an accountant is a full time position. It's, yeah. it's its own language really, and, and you know the language of understanding stocks really.
0: Is that, is that even more important than taking a macroeconomics class than Richard?
1: <laughs> well, I don't want to insult you. Uh, I would say I would say you need to know about both. I would say accounting you I think requires more of that formal side of it because, like I said, it's kind of like learning math, right? to learn math you, you have to do examples uh, you know we've all taken math classes where you have to do equations and things like that that's really the best way you learn math accounting is very similar to that so that's my opinion is i, I think you would certainly benefit from taking a formal macroeconomics course mm-hmm. and i think that would probably do you better in terms of working through sensationalist stuff because economics as i'm sure you're aware is, is very prone to those types of headlines on youtube and and even articles sometimes, you know, from respected journalists can still be a bit more sensationalist. So yeah. there's certainly value there. But all to say that, you know, I, I, I think accounting is where I see a lot of people lacking with, with research anyway. It's not to say it's all that matters. I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. But it's important. Yeah, and, and, and actually, I think
0: accounting is also super important for economists because some of the, the most tricky subjects that I talk about on the channel and, and also some of the most tricky subjects for, that I see where I see investors you know, go horribly wrong in their economic assessments can, are just because they don't understand accounting principles such as, for example, how private banks create money. That's a very tricky mm-hmm. and weird subject to, to think about. It's very counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But if you write it down in balance sheets, in accounting, then it makes total sense. And I think it's the same for money printing. Uh, or if you want to understand how a central bank actually operates and how it influences the market, then uh, looking at at their balance sheet will help you a lot. That, that will really help you understand economics a lot more. And I'm actually from... A school of thought, or not an official one, but uh, that 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 has been stressing that economists should also learn accounting.
1: That's a good point. And to your point, you know, money creation—it's a ledger entry, right? That's <laughs> yeah. that's which itself is an accounting term and an accounting concept. So, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't considered that, but it makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Um, so I I actually did a lot of accounting in my early videos. So if you scroll back to to yeah my early videos, and you can deal with the 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 horrible. Quality of the the camera and oh the we all we all have that
1: <laughs> we all have
0: that <laughs> then you'll still find those those balance sheets uh, I awesome. stopped it cool. because I think you know we also discussed this briefly between us that there's a sort of lect- lecturing approach works less well on YouTube people wanna wanna be entertained wanna be able to watch it on their phone or not take notes all the time but if you wanna go a bit deeper I think that's that's super important yeah yeah uh,
1: and I think I think some people do a good job with it but yeah it's it's it would be tough to, to do a successful YouTube channel if all you did for example was accounting videos It's not to say you can't do it but it would be tough
0: yeah hey and getting back a little bit to sort of the economics and uh, investing what i wanted what I wanted to ask you as a fundamental investor which is what you are right mm-hmm. so one of the model I've I've basically modeled you in the sense that uh, back in the days as economists uh, behavioral uh, finance uh, in the behavioral finance space we Tend to model uh, what we call chartists, which are basically people who look at charts, and they're basically technical analysts. And 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 mostly we assume that they use momentum. So they think if a stock goes up, it will continue to go up, and if a stock goes down, it will continue to go down. If and if you have, so these are one types of um, investors that we model. Then we have you. We have the riches of, of this world. We have fundamentalists. But not just you, we, we, we give you superpowers. We give you the power to actually know the actual fundamental value, that is the uh, discounted present value of all future cash flows of that company. And we simulate you, you with these chartists. But what we then notice is that if we give them a little bit of evolution, so if a fundamentalist does well, there will be more of them. And if chartism does well, there will be more of them because they make bigger profits, which is how markets yeah. work, right? Fundamentalists, even though they know the truth, they, they know everything, they have perfect knowledge, they, they, make, they lose out to quite a few of these chartists because they, they see like, oh, hey, fundamental value is this. But then a lot of chartists enter, and you could compare that to retail traders entering the GameStop uh, saga. Sure. And then the price will just go up. And if fundamentalists, they know that's not correct, so they will start shorting, 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 shorting. But of course, uh, they will get annihilated. So what, I was wondering what you think about that way of looking at markets as a fundamentalist yeah. trader.
1: And I think there, there's some truth to that. Where you know, I, I genuinely, my own view is that GameStop and all that shows a lot of the why it's so complicated to do purely fundamental analysis, uh, because if, if a set, especially in the short term um i would say market efficiency doesn't exist within a 12 month period is <laughs> is kind of my own there's some degree of it you know if if a company posts good news it will generally go up mm-hmm. but there's so much influence in the short term and really you know when you understand how a lot of uh brokers and investment banks trade positions you can see that a lot of the volume of share trades doesn't have a whole lot to do with with fundamental factors so you know, there might be a large institution that, that's trading based on technicals or whatever have you, or quantitative variables. And if, you know, if they buy for reasons that have nothing to do with fundamentals, then all of a sudden the fundamentals aren't predicting where the stock price will go. Yeah, I th- I think where I reconcile that is looking more longer term mm-hmm. because the fortunate thing about stocks is that for many companies, not all companies, but for many companies, the stock price doesn't mean a whole lot to their operational performance. It's not always the case. Uh, there are plenty of companies that continually issue shares, but there are some companies, more value positions, that actually benefit from a lower stock price. And in fact, not to not to recommend oil and gas companies, but one thing, for example, that you're seeing in that space, where stocks are so cheap, you know, if you just look at a simple ratio, you could say that oil and gas is cheaper to other industries. What well, all these companies are doing is buying back their stock. And that's actually a... Uh, a very easy method of, of returning capital to investors is, hey, if the public market doesn't want to give you a fair price for your stock, then buy back your whole company. It's an easy use of your capital. And it's, uh, you know, if you truly believe that your fundamental worth is higher than what the public market is granting you, then you can get a very good deal for the shares you have outstanding. So fortunately, for companies that aren't issuing shares, there's not a whole lot of pain that comes from having a low stock price. And their operations likely won't be impacted materially. Now, there is Mm -hmm. sort of this kind of counterintuitive side of it where a company like GameStop, for example, might be in business today solely because its stock price skyrocketed. Because GameStop issued more shares and took advantage of that and basically raised capital at the expense of investors because all of a sudden, you know, their stock price is worth a heck of a lot more. Yeah. Well, they can get a lot more for their stock if they sell stocks directly to public investors. So it's not to say it doesn't matter but if you believe in your company and you're in it for the long term then the volatility of a company stock fortunately doesn't impact the underlying business very much which means that you know again if you truly believe in the position over a 10 year period uh, or longer then you should be able to find even if the stock price doesn't move a whole lot the company can pay dividends which is just passing along the underlying profit to investors it can buy back it can buy back stocks which leads to a similar effect to dividends because even though it might not seem like it it is returning capital to investors and giving the remaining investors more of the company if you will so it's sort of similar to a stock dividend it's not perfectly the same but so that's mm. what where i would reconcile it is in the short term i would agree yeah. you know i think short term trading based on fundamentals is a <laughs> is kind of a losers game in my opinion because there's just so many variables that are not fundamental or efficient
2: mm-hmm. so
1: you know someone you could have a giant hedge fund. Uh, what was the, uh, it? Was a family office actually? Archigos, I, I believe, or it was one of the big family offices that went bankrupt and brought a bunch of stocks down with it. That has nothing to do with fun, fundamentals, and yet it dragged down the stock market because a hedge fund failed. Uh, yeah. sorry, family office, not a hedge fund, technically.
0: But Although it does have stuff. a little bit to do with fundamentals, though, right? Because the, the how the market operates is also. Uh, Part of the fundamental value of that company, perhaps, but maybe I'm yeah. taking it too far. But it's at least not—it's not technical analysis.
1: It's mm-hmm. not technical, and, and you have a good point in that. You know, there is a fundamental aspect to it in the sense that you could argue that, say, capital markets are now more difficult because this company has gone under or whatever have you. There is some fundamental impact there. I would say that likely that selling activity depressed stock prices by much more than that fundamental impact on those businesses. You know, even though this. Family offices selling these shares, the business, the impact of the underlying business was probably pretty muted in the grand scheme of things. You know, again, if you take a company that's not raising capital, mm-hmm. they're not really impacted by the state of capital markets, at least in the short term. If they're not, you know, obviously they have long term loans and things like that. But yeah, so that's that's where I reconcile. Okay. That's <laughs> okay. kind of the time frame.
0: Hey, and if I may ask you just one more question about yourself as an sure. investor, what what are your sectors? Like what what do you specialize in or or does it not work like that?
1: Yeah. uh, Again, it's not to give a recommendation, but I touched on it. Oil and gas is is one area that I've, I've looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a bit of a generalist because I work for a small company. You wear a lot of hats and look at, I've pretty much looked at every industry at least once, but real estate, oil and gas are two big ones. I've looked at finances So really, it is very broad-based. Yeah, okay, but it's
0: not not retail, it's not iced There's a lot of other sectors, right? I think oil is is very specific.
1: I think I've recommended companies in every sector, even mining, actually. Uh, Whether Hmm. it be a buy or sell, I have recommended in every sector at least once. So I'm very much a generalist, but a lot of the research has been focused on those kind of three areas. But yeah, I do cover IT. The thing I would say, though, is consumer discretionary IT, well, IT to a degree, but especially consumer discretionary. It requires a lot less expertise. That might sound like an insult. It's not meant to be, but oil and gas is a very complicated industry to analyze for a beginner. Mm -hmm. Same to a degree with with minerals, like mining companies, because they are just a totally different beast from, you know, retail. A lot of people know that the average person understands the business model of a retail company, right? We all understand how stores work. Mining and oil and gas are a lot more complicated. There's a lot of these procedures in terms of you know how much oil they produce, how much their reserves are in terms of their size. So it's a lot trickier for a beginner to analyze those industries. Mm-hmm. So I've definitely researched retail companies and, and other. I actually did a big report on utilities not too long ago. Yeah, I'm a generalist. <laughs> I guess the more I talk about the more I realize I'm a generalist. But I would say that I've spent the longest amount of time Owning my understanding towards oil and gas because it was such a tricky area to understand and finances, including insurance companies because they have, to that same point, complicated accounting rules. That actually just changed in Canada. So there's a lot to look at there.
0: But okay, what I really like here is that I can now ask you a macro question. Sure. Because I don't know too much about, uh, I'm a, also a bit of a journalist, but I, I don't know too much about how the oil and gas industry actually works. So what do you see? Because that's now an industry that's in huge turmoil. So what's mm-hmm. going on there? Do you, do you know? What's your assessment of, you know, the oil and gas market at the moment? There, there are so, two different things already, I, I guess. But uh,
1: Yeah, so it, it depends, you know, to look at Canada specifically, we have a very, I don't want to say unique market, but a lot of our companies are constrained heavily by infrastructure. So things like pipelines were very political in Canada. And because of that, there's basically no new capacity coming with pipelines. So what we have is is what we've got. So a lot of success in oil and gas is tied to the, call it the efficiency of oil extraction. So whether your reserves have easy to access and economic oil, there are a whole bunch of different variables there in terms of how much oil is in the ground, how much it produces uh, in terms of you know effort that you put in and the netbacks and things like that, which is kind of your profit margin on that so outside of what do you uh, mean
0: with netbacks?
1: sorry, netback is the profitability per barrel of oil. Ah, so okay. think of it as like net income per barrel it's, okay that's not fully accurate, but that's kind of what it means so outside of that, so there's extraction, there's transportation, and then there's there's where you sell it, and those all matter quite a bit. So transportation is important because if you're close to a pipeline, it's a lot cheaper. But you also have to make sure that that pipeline is willing to give you capacity because at the same time you're there, there might be three other companies also trying to use that same pipeline. So that's another variable to consider. And then there's where you sell because, you know, technically Canadian oil could be shipped overseas and and maybe earn a, a higher premium. A lot of it is just sold to the U.S., And actually, Canadian oil sells at a discount at a discount to uh, U.S. oil. Really? Because there's a big supplier, sorry, there's a big advantage to demand, a lot of buyer power because we have really one big customer, which is the United States, Mm. and the United States has a lot more infrastructure for oil and gas movement than Canada does. So one of the big political issues was Canada was trying to. I think it was actually natural gas, which um, natural gas is very similar to oil because. At the same time, you extract oil. There's a lot of natural gas in that same reservoir, so mm-hmm. a lot of companies will make both. Mm-hmm. Canada was trying to ship the natural gas and possibly oil to its west coast, so that it could then sell it to Asian countries and and different markets out that way. Yeah, um, and it got canceled. Basically, was was uh, you know, so that's the tricky thing with Canada. It's it's.
2: But well, why did it, it get canceled?
1: Politically, so uh, environmental concerns about. Ah, okay. uh, there, there were rare killer whales <laughs> that, that lived there and, and things like that, that people were worried it would disrupt. Their, the. And it's not to say that those concerns aren't valid, but obviously it led to this economic limitation, if you will. So all to say, it's, it's a very tricky area to navigate naturally because you have these three, area, these three important variables, how well you produce it, how you transport it, and where you sell it, that are often very constrained by where, which land you owned, the infrastructure you have, and the, and the markets you can actually access because of that infrastructure. So it's a yeah. lot to consider. And that's that's
0: important, know. for example, for me, like if I want to invest in oil and gas and I'm seeing hey, oil and gas prices well, especially here in Europe, are insanely high. Uh, so I'm going to go invest in Canada, but it could be that Canada is not the best position to take advantage of that, for example, and the US oil, gas at least market is fairly much more isolated than many other gas markets. And then that's a good way to get burned as an investor, right? if you don't under, yeah, if you don't I, do the research then
1: yeah if you don't understand how the broader market works and you know things like infrastructure for example like you could find a company that's advertising hey we make the most oil at the cheapest price it's like great i'm going to buy that company well maybe they don't have infra- infrastructure and maybe they have to use trucks to transport all their oil and maybe that's very expensive to do so so that's why it's important to understand those those three variables mm-hmm. and then on top of that, you have the demand side of it, right? so that's just supply yeah. on the demand side of it, it's you know are people even willing to buy oil and when you have a pandemic, for example, we saw oil prices go negative because there was a period of time where at least yeah. investors uh it's important to remember that that was a futures contract, uh not mm. a uh you know specific barrel yeah uh, for example mm. but uh still to say that people didn't want barrels for a period of time yeah. so it's it's Like any commodity business, it's really a tricky area because not only do you have to have a good business, you have to have a good price and you don't have a whole lot of control over the price of the thing you're selling. So compare that to like a tech company, like, you know, again, not recommending any businesses, but like Apple, for example, which you could argue has a very strong brand position and a Mm -hmm. lot of price power. Yeah, Obviously, they're in a much better situation to earn hefty profits versus an oil and gas company, which... Two years ago was losing money. Now is making a bunch of money because oil prices are higher. Who knows where they'll be a year from now? So yeah. It's a really tricky area.
0: So fundamental investors watching the stream start with tech. And then uh, only when you're advanced, like Richard, you have seen 100 plain bagel videos. Can you move to oil and gas and commodities? <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually cover uh, industry specific stuff, but. It's kind of like the same position I take with, with individual stocks. I don't want to talk too much about individual sectors because I don't want to encourage people to invest in different areas, but for sure it's... Uh, no, but it's, uh, I think we've given
0: a disclaimer. We've said already for investment, it doesn't matter at all how good a sector is doing. It, it only matters how good it's doing compared to its price. And so since we've said nothing about the price, uh, they, they shouldn't be, have anything to make investment decisions on with you talking about oil and gas now, right? <laughs> but but yeah, I'm just saying that because I wanted to ask you one more question about oil and gas. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah
1: that's fine.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to cover you, but um, no, because so I was wondering. So about this market, uh, 2014, 2015, like you mentioned, was crucial for this whole market, right? In the sense that they had the sh- shale discoveries in the United States. This mm-hmm. is when people started talking about the end of uh, the peak oil and uh, sort of can Saudi Arabia even. You know, break even as a, as a country with, uh, with their budget. Uh, and as I understood it, the, the price crashed. And then uh, what we're dealing with partially now, but please correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, a long period of underinvestment. And shale apparently cannot scale up as fast as we would like now that Russia has cut off a lot, or, or we, we have cut off Russia, whoever yeah. did it.
1: <laughs> yeah, whichever side. Can uh, yeah, we
0: scale up, Richard? Because I, I need to survive this winter.
1: Well, that's the thing, right, is I actually, I went to this presentation from a big Canadian oil investor advocate, uh, Eric Nuttall, and he kind of argued that, no, we we can't scale up very quickly. He sort of divided into, you know, if you look at super majors, so Occidental, Exxon, and and like those bigger oil producers, mm-hmm. they, a lot of them with international presence are very hesitant now to scale up production because they were burned by that, that Uh, time period, and a lot of them are trying to navigate the renewable side of things of, Mm. you know, we're going to pivot, we're going to eventually become a green producer, uh, and we're going to invest in renewable. So because of uh, their publicity, I guess, almost, a lot of the companies shunning, basically, new projects for oil, at least large oil expansion, even given the current price, because they know how fickle that can be. And I, I believe he, I might be misquoting him. And again, this is an analyst who really likes oil and gas. So take that with a grain of salt. But I believe he, specifically Canadian oil and gas. So, you know, he's obviously going to argue that it's harder for competitors to do well. But I think he argued something along the lines of that. It would take them, even if they wanted to expand into oil, it would take them to build the infrastructure about four to five years to get oil out of the ground for a, a project that's already been planned out for them. So it takes time to to build up the infrastructure for for an oil and gas well, right? Because it's not just, you know, building the infrastructure. It's actually testing the ground, finding where the oil res- uh, reservoir is located, and mm. the most optimal place to, to put your well to extract that. There's a lot of engineering that goes into it. So on that side of it, it's going to take some time for the supply side to scale up. There are countries, you know, Iran is another one that is a big oil producer that is facing sanctions. Yeah. Some people believe that they're already selling oil through the black market. You could read some articles about satellite imagery showing (laughs) barrels of oil being placed onto cargo ships. Mm, Uh, uh, But all to say that, obviously, there's some who believe that they might be able to to fill the capacity gap because they're a big producer. Problem is, they're not on very good terms with the U.S., and their oil has basically been shunned by a lot of the developed world. And then there's Canadian producers where, even still, even though Canadian Producers might be in a better position, and this probably applies to U.S. producers as well. Uh, not specifically shale, because shale is very difficult to attract investor money, even though they can very quickly seemingly grow production. Yeah, they also have very slim margins, so that's the thing to consider. But even now,
0: with prices this high, it, like why can't they scale up now and and get a nice? It's
1: not they would make money at this price. It's mm-hmm. to say that investors aren't willing to take the risk. Yeah, okay. that's kind of it's mm. sort of like a muscle memory thing mm. where. It's the same reason why after two thousand eight, you probably didn't have a whole lot of investors. uh, Well, housing in in the U.S. didn't have a whole lot of supply for a while. Where Mm -hmm. a lot of home builders, even though prices might have started to recover, it took them a very long time to start building houses. And even to this day, we, uh, if I'm not mistaken, home building activity in the U.S. is still below two thousand eight levels. You know that, and prices have have increased quite a bit, possibly as a result of that. Yeah. So, a lot of that aspect is is just it's the same thing as the super majors. There's this pain behind it that's investors don't want their money going into the development of that stuff, whether it be for green reasons or just financial reasons, that they lost a lot of money during that period of you know 2015 to 2018, roughly when that GLUT happened. So that's that's the problem with even though we have this call it a perfect situation to build something in the short term, anyway, in terms of, you know, if you were able to sell oil today, you would make a lot of money. A lot of people just aren't willing to take the risk thinking that if oil prices were to normalize two years from now, it's tricky too. You know, if you build infrastructure that takes five years, mm-hmm. but you know, California is banning gas vehicles in 2035. Well, that only gives you five, you know, if you extrapolate, California is a, a rare case, but if you extrapolate that and say, people are going to try to cut down their consumption, a lot of people don't want to invest in a short-term project that takes five years to, to build. So supply constraint is definitely a, A big variable for, and a big part of a lot of investor thesis, PSI (laughs) theses, around oil and gas.
0: Okay, okay. So yeah, so if I can tie it a little bit to to economics, I'm I'm definitely hearing you talking about at least two more important concepts. One is the hog cycle, and that that refers to something that economists um, first sort of uh, saw in the market for hogs. So that is pigs, and that is basically that. In any market where there's a delay between sort of investing and producing, you, you very quickly get cycles in the sense that, you know, if the price of hogs is really high today, you're going to be breeding hogs, uh, but it takes a while for them to grow up. And then so everybody is breeding for, you know, more hogs. And then you automatically sort of naturally, instead of sort of the standard theory uh, markets are stable, uh, you get cycles. Is that model applicable to a lot of commodities as well?
1: I, I would I would say so. I mean, at the end of the day, the vast majority of commodities take have quite a bit of lag time mm-hmm. to lead to production, and that applies to mining, that applies to oil and gas, really any kind of commodity. When you think about the process involved with it, and even outside of extracting it, oil and gas, a big part of it is refining as well. Refining is a big function of of oil and gas. There's also a shortage of refineries in in some places. So, uh, you know, obviously we can't stick black Oil into our cars; it needs to be refined, and, and different byproducts need to come of that. And yeah, so so all to say that, yeah, I, I think this cycle approach makes a lot of sense. And we saw that with with the glut as well, right? There was a period mm-hmm. where prices were call it stable. So all these shale producers built and built and built and built, and then the price collapsed because of that. All these companies exited. Now the prices recovered. Companies may, and and we are seeing. You know, there are Canadian companies, for example. Acquisition activity has increased a lot, so companies are once again willing to because it's harder to build the infrastructure. They'll just buy smaller competitors as opposed to building more infrastructure. Mm-hmm. At a net basis, though, there's mm. this reluctance to build net capacity. I guess because at the same time, you know, politician politicians are fighting the for better or for worse. You know, I'm not to say, I'm not against green initiatives. I think obviously we need to make some progress there, but a lot of these companies and the governments that they operate under uh, have a reluctance, right? You know, it's not a good look to say, okay, we're we're going to invest all this money into oil and gas. And the inflation reduction bill from, you know, Biden focuses a lot on, or at least has a bit in there about electric vehicles. It's not to say that that's a bad thing, but it's to say that on top of the cyclical nature of the industry, you also have secular trends, right? About whether oil and gas probably 10 years from now won't be, I think actually peak demand is, Forecast by some to be around 2035 to 2040. Okay. So who knows where we'll be in 20 years, right? Yeah, um, It's all to say that a lot of companies, a lot of countries are trying to future proof their investments and oil and gas probably doesn't look like all that attractive to be future proof.
0: Yeah. And, uh, but one thing that you mentioned was interesting to me. You said, okay, a lot of uh, small parties have been bought up by large competitors and this I can link to. I, I, I saw someone in the chat mentioning because this is uh, it said honestly. They want more money for the oil. It's the power of monopoly, and this is very much sort of the um, concentration of power in certain markets. Argument that's being uh, also made a lot in relation to inflation. And since now a lot of inflation, particularly in Europe, is in the energy sector, is that also a part of it? Is that is that fair to say? In, because so in yeah.
1: In terms of like uh, politicians like wanting power in oil and gas production, is that what you mean? Or
0: no, uh, so this uh, this user D T Y I I (laughs) G, not sure how to pronounce it, is basically saying that uh, the companies have monopoly power, and so they could scale up production if they want to.
1: Yeah, so I would say that. I mean. You know, if you were to say, "Well, what did a company learn from from the oil glut from a few years ago, I'm sure there are companies out there that say, "Hey, we have the capacity. We're not going to uh, because why would we? We don't mm-hmm. want to and you know OPEC to some degree kind of exemplifies that. you know a lot of and there are some who question whether OPEC could drastically expand production or if maybe they're already kind of close to that yeah. uh, limit, if you will, but you know at least in terms of their messaging, they've refused to fully open the floodgates, if you will, in terms of oil supply. So for sure, I think there's uh, that aspect to it. You know, suppliers are trying to keep their supplier power, their newfound supplier power, if you will, by limited supply. And but then, you know, you kind of get into the that Nash equilibrium side of it, right? Where you might have a a company that says, well, you know, I'm gonna be the one that that expands production. And I think for sure if you would have a period of time where, say, $100 a barrel was sustained for, say, several years, mm-hmm. you would see the production pick up. I mm-hmm. think there's no doubt about it. OPEC has itself even struggled to maintain price, obviously, over the last few years, price stability. And that's a formal organization whose, whose sole objective is the... Yeah, I mean, yeah, cartel. objective, But a formal yeah. one to, to try and fix the oil price. Yeah. And they've largely failed at that.
0: But Um, but doesn't that go against sort of the hypothesis that it's big oil companies that do this? Because I'm not sure. So uh, this is a a camouflaged question. We tend to think of these oil companies as big, powerful, like Exxon, Shell, right? We think uh, they're some of the biggest companies in the world. But do they actually have the pricing power in this market? Or are they actually relatively small compared to national players?
1: I would say, uh, you know what? I wouldn't have the the numbers to... That say, like, I, I wouldn't know what, what supply of oil comes from, say, Shell or or uh, one of these companies specifically. I would say that they probably have more supplier power in this current environment than they might have had, you know, even just a few years ago. Mm. Uh, especially with, you know, you mentioned Russia uh, mm-hmm. when you have this big world power pull out their, oh, yeah, their okay. oil supply. Well, well yeah. heck, you're in a much better situation. And hey, maybe you don't bolster production right away and you just reap in the profits. Um, I do think it has more to do with their kind of investor focus, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of oil and gas companies have had very depressed valuations for quite some time. And actually, this is a point that Eric Nuttall, uh, again, that very uh, pro-Canada oil and gas investor, what he made in his presentation is a lot of companies just think that they'll get better returns on capital, returning money to investors as opposed to just building more production. Uh, Because, you know, at the current level of production... So, so. You could say it's it's that you know keeping the supplier side of it, but I think companies like Shell are more so worried about what do our investors want and how do we appeal to that? And I think a lot of the answer for the super majors is, well, we're going to invest more in green initiatives as opposed to building out our supply because their their stock price was punished for quite some time for being in oil and gas. Yeah. So I think it has, I, I would speculate, this is total speculation,
0: but I would say it has
1: more to do. <laughs> I would guess it has more to do with With uh, that side of it, because these stocks, you know, at the end of the day, they do want their valuation to increase. And they, when you have companies like Tesla and green style companies earning a stock premium because Mm -hmm. they are Mm -hmm. green focused, even if they aren't as profitable, these companies get sort of a valuation premium to them, uh, whether it be renewables, renewable utilities, whatever have you. So I think companies like Shell look at that and they think, well, geez, like if we want to see our stock price improve. We're gonna expand our renewable and our, our green presence. And, you know, to some degree, there's there's benefit in that. And, you know, a big part of our transition is going you know, a lot of people they they take an all or nothing approach, just like investing, I guess, where it's all or nothing. It's either we go all green investments tomorrow or next year, um, mm-hmm. or the world ends. And, you know, there there is a need for aggressive investment in green. But I think oil and gas. Contrary to what a lot of people believe, it's going to be around for quite some time, and I think transition investments are going to be important. In um, transition technologies and things like carbon capture and things along those lines are going to be very important over the next decade or so. Again, my opinion there, but <laughs> but to say that, I think that's where a lot of these companies are going to focus a bit more on in the near term is is trying to offset their carbon footprint and things like that mm-hmm. because that's what draws investor attention.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah and uh, uh from the perspective of the energy sector this this whole oil is expensive again and we want more oil and especially gas is a super new thing right so it, it will take a lot of time for them to maybe even mentally adjust to to that.
1: Yeah there there is a muscle memory aspect to it where you know if they've been burned it, it, like I said home yeah. construction in the US is a perfect example of that of when you know investors they, they remember the pain they felt and after seeing the collapse of, of different oil and gas companies and uh, the price of oil, they're probably going to be reluctant at the very least to see how long those prices are sustained, right? A yeah. blip in oil prices isn't going to lead to a surge in investment. It's going to take time for, you know, call it those old wounds to heal and for people to forget about that and to be, not to be too, uh, you know, righteous, no. but <laughs> blinded by greed, I guess, you know, oh, well, I don't like oil and gas, but geez, they're making a lot of money. Uh, now we'll boost production or whatever have you?
0: Yeah, I guess uh, a, bit, a bit similar to how sort of uh, crypto collapsed and people thought, well, it's going to be a while until we didn't see the next bubble. But when the the returns are so good, uh, people well, yeah, happily that's, get that's, back that's, into
1: it. Yeah, that's it, right? It's it's the allure of of the financial markets and kind of why we have bubbles is you can fight against something as much as you want, but if you see people making money with it, I've no, I know people who. Don't believe in Bitcoin. Who still purchase some of it? You know, (laughs) like it's at the end of the day, you you might know the game you're playing, but you you still see it's still very hard to to look away from that attractive.
0: Yeah, and then I think that brings us back to sort of what we talked about before, where uh, you have a fundamental investor, but a fundamental investor can also look at what other market participants are doing and anticipate those. And try to play the game of, of both uh, the chartist, maybe, or momentum investor and the fundamental investor for optimal returns.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, and I think, you know, I've, even though I'm a fundamental investor, I think it's important, uh, like a balanced view is always the best thing, right? To consider the technical side of it, the quantitative side of it. And, you know, even with cryptocurrencies, like I'm not a, an enthusiast myself, but I don't, I don't want to be blind to stuff. And that's kind of the end of the day. You know, I recognize my own limitations. And I'll read about all different types of things, even stuff that might be opposed to my own approach to investing, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, you know, we're all human. We all have our own biases and limitations. And I'm sure you see in economics, too. You have people who subscribe to different schools. Usually a good approach is to listen to, to both schools of thought and to try and come to some balanced reconciliation between the two.
0: Yeah, and I think more people like like I'm, I'm trying, even if we get back to our discussion about uh, you, the state of YouTube finance. Like actually, I'm surprised uh, sometimes to see so many people who really disagree with me, especially on monetary economics. So maybe they're more on sort of uh, hey, money is a commodity, uh, Bitcoin is the next money, blah, blah, blah. And they still watch a lot of my content, and and that is just I think the the, the best thing that I, I, I typically see because then I'm I'm saying okay, but this this is great because you disagree with me. You still watch it because you want you want to yeah. not be caught in your bubble, uh-huh, yeah. And, which gives you know, me hope.
1: I, you know, I, I like to say debate is the the path to truth, and and I I've always thought that with even my channel, uh, it's not to say that you can't you can have your own beliefs and and you should hold your own beliefs and and you know argue against ideas you don't believe in, but debate is important, and and I think if you can do that in a healthy you know not aggressive environment where it's just name calling and you know. Uh, straw manning people's arguments which i think happens a lot even in economics i'm sure you see a lot of people probably have called you a a federal reserve uh sleeper agent i'm I'm sure so yeah and i'm I'm
0: also a ccp uh sleeper agent these days oh cool Uh,
1: both nice yeah yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. i work for all countries
1: nice yeah so i mean like i think if you can avoid that stuff which obviously that's just a a non-starter for for discussion for healthy discussion you know i'll talk to uh people who are really into crypto and, and have those debates because I think it's important. That's that's how you you find out what you're missing and, and uh, things like that. So uh, you know I, I encourage that stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, I actually quite like when people have constructive criticism not not necessarily negative, <laughs> you know, insults, but I quite like constructive criticism, even if it's on the subject I'm discussing, because that usually prompts me to think, oh, well, maybe I am wrong about that, and I'll go look into it, and you know, maybe learn something about the the topic. Uh, so. It's uh, but yeah, it's 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 a tricky space on finance, too, especially economics because it's such a politicized issue, too, right? Yeah. Um, talk about money printing. Uh, I would, or you know, the concept of money printing. I think it's probably one of. I, I think I asked you when you were on my podcast what uh, was the most misunderstood thing in economics. My mm-hmm. thought would be money printing in the current environment. I, I think to your point about accounting, I, I think the base yeah. level is if you realize that banks are giving a like money asset. Or Federal Reserve bank reserves, you know, you kind of get a better understanding. Whereas a lot of people oversimplify it as, well, it's just banks get free money, and that's why we have massive inflation and things like
0: that. Yeah, and and that that will really burn you, not always, but uh, I think a lot if you're an investor as well. Like for example, uh, the United States was a country that printed the most money in the sense that I did the most stimulus and yet the dollar is the the country uh, the currency that came out on top over mm-hmm. these last few uh, months uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah
1: it's it's kind of funny not to I uh, <laughs> I'm not going to name names but there's one YouTube video I saw of
0: this, name uh, names Richard.
1: no 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 I'm not I don't want to the thing <laughs> is I I never want to be uh, uh, jaded or you know try to go after people I'd rather have a, a positive discussion and discuss what I believe in and what I think uh, you know, focus. Highlight the 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 people with with good education and good experience, such as yourself and your channel, where I think you do a really good job. As opposed to, you know, I'll give my criticisms, but I'm not going to punch someone down. <laughs> I guess, but mm-hmm. uh, there was one video I saw that uh, it was like a YouTuber interviewing. I he said financial experts, mm-hmm. and it was basically other finance YouTubers, and nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But you know, money printing was was the main thing they all talked about, mm. and I almost wonder if if. Any of them had that that you know background and understanding of, of what that concept actually is because I think if you watch a lot of YouTube videos and, and things like that, money printing is going to be painted as one one way, whereas if you talk to academics and economists, it's going to be painted another. So it's it, it's a tricky space, and that's why I think and to your point, I think you should get professional education or explicit education around accounting, economics probably helps too because I, I think uh, it's good to get that information from a not-so-politicized source, hopefully.
0: That makes sense. I think that's a a really good way to round over a conversation in which we have uh, covered a a ton of topics. Uh, I especially really enjoyed learning so much from you about the oil and gas industry, which I didn't know too much about, so this ended up being also a lot... uh, yeah, Yuri learns macro from Plain Bagel, or at least <laughs> oh, indus- no, industry I level mean, macro.
1: Yeah, it's it's a good. And again, I'll say it again as my final disclaimer: I'm not recommending uh, any particular sector or position investments. It's just you know I. You could assume that I'm assu- I'm analyzing an industry. Maybe I came to a, a a sell or buy recommendation, but that's kind of it's an interesting area though, and and oil and gas. We like to assume that it's it's a dying industry, maybe it is, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still such an important commodity. It's really hard to ignore that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then I, I really liked how you tied it to being a fundamental value investor, but also taking into account chartists, or that's how an academic would say what you would say, technical traders. And I hope that we've also highlighted, uh, like at least have a look at the basics of uh Macroeconomics, if you want to invest, uh, like money printing, other monetary policies, exchange rates, uh, and business cycles, hog cycles is, uh, is something we talked I about. I had never,
1: I hadn't heard that uh, that term before. That I mean, I've heard business cycles, but I hadn't heard hog cycles. That's really interesting. But, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great analogy.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's. An, I, I I definitely recommend anyone to uh, to Google that. Uh, but let's round off this conversation uh, by you taking one final question from the
1: audience. How about that? Sure. Okay, you want me to pick one?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Ah, oh, jeez, let's see. Uh da, da, da. or
0: or maybe maybe we should ask them to submit a, a question.
1: Sure. Cuz I think yeah, there's, there's someone submitted a, a real discussions. a really good closing question. <laughs> no pressure.
0: And and it will take some time because uh, there's a, typically a small delay between us uh talking and uh, and people uh, <laughs> So uh, this is also one thing I really enjoy. Sometimes looking at the chat, so now this guy, or girl, not real, says, "I love pro-China content."
1: <laughs> we didn't even really talk about China. <laughs> we didn't. That's that, true. That's the problem with uh, with YouTube, though. Eh? It's yeah. I mean, like you see that all the time. Is is and and that's you know, <laughs> I, I think one important approach is with comments. You you, you try to take the feedback that's genuine, and, and you got to build a bit of a <laughs> You got to be able to filter through through stuff as well. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's one question. Chantel Koolsma says, "What if you don't want to invest in oil due to ethics?" All the power to you. Uh, I would say is uh, like I said, um, it's not a recommendation about which industries you should invest in. I think there it's within ESG, which is environmental, social, governance, kind of a, a broad-based term. It's important to recognize the limitations of that term because a lot of people. There are oil and gas companies that are classified as ESG. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But you should invest in areas that you feel comfortable in, that you have a, you know, if you're buying individual stocks, that you have a, a core competence and understanding and things like that. So there's other opportunities in the stock market. And it's kind of like what I said earlier, that our company, for example, weights between different industries. We don't go all in on oil and gas. Or we don't go all in on tech there's plenty of opportunity in the stock market. It's not just within single singular industries. So if you don't want to invest in a certain sector, all the power to you. Uh, you know, that's your own money. That's a free market, baby. Uh, <laughs> just put your your money where you want to.
0: And there's still um, a lot of uh, opportunity in um, uh, renewables as well, right? Like solar exactly. panels, heat pumps are, are super hot. Yeah,
1: and, and renewable utilities. There's, there's all kinds of companies. And, and if you even, even within oil and gas, you know, you might not like that sector. There are companies, again, that have an ESG label, companies that might have a... There are companies that have net negative carbon emissions where at the very least, uh, they either through investment, uh, the purchase of you know carbon credits or whatever have you, offset the majority of their production or more than what they produce in an attempt to be a green company. So there's a lot of room within that framework if you still want to take advantage of that, but you know have this ethical... Dilemma, if you will, invest where you want to. You know, invest, and I think it's important to invest in your where you have values because otherwise, you're kind of just speculating, really, right? If you want to invest in something for the long term, but you don't believe in it ethically, (laughs) you're you're kind of not really believing in that company. And I think one way to reconcile ethics with investing because I know a lot of people they take a very cold-hearted capitalist approach of, well, if it makes money, like who cares? You know, at the end of the day, you can have your ethics, and I'll have my money. I think ethics are actually important to consider in the sense that it's a risk to a company, just like the super majors are showing us. If investors believe that something is unethical, they might pull investor money from that company. And that will have a real fundamental impact on that business, even though they're making money. So I think you can consider ethics in your investment framework from a risk side of things. Of you know, If something's unethical, it's actually a higher risk position, in my opinion, not just because of investor pulling back money, you might see regulation. Certainly with oil and gas, that's been a, a big headwind for some companies. So there's, there's certainly ways you can reconcile that. But absolutely, you don't need to, <laughs> you don't have to invest in oil and gas.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. With that uh, all being said, I think it's uh, time that I head into the garden to enjoy the last uh, summer uh, sun with a nice uh, glass of tea. And I think you have Sounds to get back fantastic. to work. <laughs>
1: I have to get back to work, yes.
0: <laughs> although I'm super honored that you, uh, you took time out of your work workday uh, to talk to, oh. uh, to us about money and macro.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was, it was a really fun conversation.
0: Thank you, Richard. And for anyone who hasn't subscribed yet to the Plain Bagel, although I don't think there are many, uh, do so. I mean, you, you, you see that uh, Richard is a very ethical and careful uh, educator and investor from uh, whom you can, can learn a lot.
1: Thanks, sir. I appreciate that. I try my I try my best,
0: and he's very modest as well. All right, thanks so much. Uh, take care, everybody.